Well, we have come to that poignant moment that all of Jesus' life has been moving toward. Uh, We have come at last to the crucifixion of our Lord, and today we're going to be looking at just the first four verses of this crucifixion narrative as it summarizes in brief detail the execution of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired and errant and infallible word. We find ourselves picking up in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, and we'll be reading uh, simply verses 32 through 36 together. These verses form something of a summary of what will go on in the rest of the chapter here. Uh, This is the very word of God. Let's give it our attention. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them. By casting lots. And they sat down and they kept watch over him there. Thus ends the reading of God's word. All flesh is like grass and all of its glory is like the flower of grass. That grass withers and its flower falls, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever been? In the wrong place, at the wrong time. One of those occasions when, through no fault of your own, something bad happened to you just uh, because you were in the wrong place at the wrong time in God's mysterious providence. Well, as the Roman soldiers compelled Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross of Jesus to Calvary, Simon must have felt like he was the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mark tells us that he had just been coming in from the country. Uh, He had come from the country of Cyrene, a port city uh, in North Africa, in what we would call modern-day Libya, a a port city which had become home uh, to a significant number of Jews in the the dispersion. There was a, a large Jewish population there. And so Simon was likely coming to Jerusalem with his family to celebrate the Passover. And here he is, he's making his way up to the Temple Mount, when he just happens upon this procession of soldiers, uh, leading what appears to be a common criminal out of the city. The criminal is lugging a crossbeam on his shoulders. Those who were sentenced to execution by crucifixion were often made to carry their own crossbeam upon which they would be hung. They would carry it from the praetorium uh, to the crucifixion site. These crossbeams would be used over and over again. Uh, This one likely had already been stained with the blood of many victims who had been nailed to it before. And now this particular man is being led out of the city 
Uh, He is bloodied and disfigured from the scourging he's already endured. And he is clearly too exhausted to carry the load of this cross. And so the Roman legion does what Romans would often do. They enlist a passerby. They press them into service. Roman law permitted a soldier uh, to commandeer uh, citizens of occupied lands for all sorts of menial tasks. And so they would press the tip of their spear into the back of your neck and kindly ask you to comply with their wishes. So it was with Simon. This wasn't in his plans for the day. This is not how he envisioned his Passover celebration playing out. He was just the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time. Or was he? If God's providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all his creatures and all their actions, while it may have seemed to Simon that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, it turns out that he was actually just exactly where God would have him to be. Just as each of us are here today, where God would have us to be, considering this difficult yet beautiful portion of God's word. And so, we'll come back to that thought at the end, but for now, I want to work through God's Word together and consider some of the things that Simon would have witnessed that terrible and beautiful Good Friday. Here are three things that Simon would have witnessed. He would have witnessed the frightfulness of suffering. As Jesus suffers the shame and the horrors of the crucifixion. Simon would have witnessed the fulfillment of Scripture. As Matthew recounts just a few of the ways in which the crucifixion is the fulfillment of the Scriptures, proving and demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ. And finally, Simon would have been witnessing the fullness of salvation as we see the end and purpose of his sufferings as our substitute. The frightfulness of suffering, the fulfillment of Scripture, and the fullness of salvation. I consider the frightfulness of that suffering. D.A. Carson writes, 2,000 years of Christian tradition have largely domesticated the cross, making it hard for us to realize how it was viewed in Jesus' time. As the saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. And the cross has been so commonplace in our thinking, such a familiar story, such a conventional sign, that we have lost something of the horror of what it signified in the ancient world. There is a large cross on the wall behind me, and it just fades into the background. It's a decoration. The cross has in some ways become for us an ornament, a piece of jewelry, a bumper sticker symbol. It was not viewed that way in the ancient world. In the ancient world, nobody used the cross to decorate their homes. 
Nobody hung a cross around their neck. I understand, of course, why we do this, because the cross is something that we glory in. But because it is so common, it, it, it runs the risk of, of losing an appreciation for the darkness and the horror of the cross. It was a cursed way to die. For the Jew, it was a cursed way to die because God had said, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. For the Romans, it was the most brutal form of execution. It was reserved for foreign criminals and slaves. In fact, the cross was considered so brutal and demeaning that no Roman citizen could be crucified apart from a direct edict from the emperor himself. And yet, hundreds and even thousands of victims were crucified in the Roman Empire. And yet, interestingly, despite that uh, historical record, we had very little archaeological evidence to the practice of crucifixion until in 1968, some archaeologists were excavating a Jewish tomb at Givat Miftar, and they found this uh, ossuary, uh, in in an ossuary, the bones of a man who had been crucified. If you don't know what an, an ossuary is, an ossuary was a bone box. Uh, and the discovery of this bone box has helped us to understand and appreciate the biblical account. The Jewish burial practice at this time, especially among those who had wealth and means, uh, was to prepare the body and to lay it out on a stone table uh, within a tomb. And then a year or so after the burial, once the body had decayed, the loved ones would return and they would gather the bones of their loved ones into a box, into an an ossuary, and they would place it in a section of the tomb. It seems gross to us, but in this way, entire families, the bones of entire families would be uh, held together in anticipation of the resurrection in the same tomb. You can hear the roots of some of these ideas all the way back in the, in the patriarchal narratives where they're t- saying, take my bones. When you leave Egypt, take my bones with you and bury them with my fathers. What is interesting about the bones of this particular man is that they were the first bones to be found from a victim of crucifixion, which helps to confirm and helps us to understand what happened to our Savior Uh, We have the impression from centuries of artistic renderings that the nails that pierced his hands were pierced through the fleshy part of his hands, what we think of as the palms, and through the front of his feet. But the bones of this crucified victim tell a different story. A single nail, Roman iron nail, remains intact, joined through the bones of the ankles, You see, the legs would be bent to the side and the feet brought together and then a single nail would be driven through the bones of the ankles. Uh, Rather than nail markings through the palms, the markings appear through the, the bones of the arms just below what we would call the wrists. This would keep the nails from tearing out through the fingers. The tibias of this man's bones were badly broken. 
confirming the biblical witness that the legs of victims would be broken to speed up the process of death as they would seek to push up from their legs in order to fill their lungs with air. We can only imagine the the horror of this. The cries of pain and agony as nails were hammered through his ankle bones and then through his wrists. And then again as the cross was hastily raised up and dropped into a post hole. The pain. And once the initial horrors of the crucifixion had been completed, the agonizing process of death would begin. Carson again describes its horrors in this way. He says, Crucifixion was unspeakably painful and degrading. The victim endured countless paroxysms as he pulled with his arms and pushed with his legs to keep his chest cavity open for breathing and then collapsed in exhaustion until the demand for oxygen required renewed paroxysms. The scourging, the loss of blood, the shock from the pain all produced agony that would go on for days, ending at last by suffocation, cardiac arrest, or just the loss of blood. The pain was excruciating. In fact, that word, excruciating, comes from the Latin word for the cross. To be intensely painful. And you add to that pain of the cross the shame of the cross, the shame of being treated as a criminal and hung between criminals, the shame of being dressed down to a crown of thorns, our Lord having His nakedness exposed and hanging before all the world to see, the shame of hearing the mocking jeers and the derisive taunts as the crowds mocked His pain. The frightful depths of man's sinful cruelty and wickedness are on full display here as Jesus endures the horrors of the cross. And yet it is not just the frightful cruelty of man that is on display. Matthew takes pains to show us that it is also God's plan and purpose that is on display. Because Matthew would have us to understand that these frightful sufferings are the fulfillment of so many scriptures. One of Matthew's principles in this per, uh, principal purposes in this gospel has been to set Jesus forward as the king of the Jews, as their king, their long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. He is, as the sign above him will read, the king of the Jews. And, and part of the reason that Matthew recounts the crucifixion as he does is to draw our attention to the ways in which this is fulfilling the Scriptures. Not the least of which is that this is the fulfillment of Jesus' own words. Throughout this Gospel, Jesus has been predicting that He would be handed over to the Gentiles and crucified. And that's important for Matthew. Because one of the ways that God had told His people that they would recognize whether a prophet was true or not was based upon, very simply, whether their words came to pass. Jesus' death confirms His character and calling as a prophet sent by God. We just sang, hear the long-expected prophet. 
in addition to that, the fact of all of these other things, for instance, that we're told that they are leading Jesus out of the city. It seems like such, such a minor detail. And yet, this is exactly what happened to sacrificial victims. When the blood of the sacrifices were offered, what did they do with the bodies of those animals? They brought them outside of the camp and they disposed of them there. The author of Hebrews picks up on this point and he tells us, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And where is he being brought? He's being brought to Golgotha, or Calvary in Latin, which he identifies as the place of the skull. Uh, the place is not known to us. There, is, there are at least multiple sites which people claim to be Golgotha, Uh, but it was apparently well-known to Matthew's original audience. Why is it called the place of the skull? Is it due to its shape? One of the proposed sites has caves in the walls, which uh, from the right angle, and if you use enough imagination, you can sort of see the face of a skull. Was it simply due to the fact that it was identified as a place of death, as a place where um, the Romans would crucify their victims? If you look at many artistic renderings throughout the years of the crucifixion, there's often worked into the painting somewhere a skull. It's interesting that all four Gospels use the Greek word cranion, Uh, It's a word that means sort of the top of the head or the skull cap. It's it's hard for me to think that there's not at least some allusion here back to Genesis 3 and to that promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Now, whether we're to find an allusion in those words or not, I don't know, but I, I do know that that's exactly what's going on here. That here... On this hillside, by his death, Christ is crushing the skull of that ancient serpent. And yet, even as he does, he is being bruised himself. The children of the devil, the brood of vipers, continue their taunt. They offer him wine to drink mixed with gall. Matthew here alludes to Psalm 69. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Gall is something bitter. Mark tells us that they made it bitter with myrrh. Jesus is here dying of thirst. As the psalmist recounts it in Psalm 22, my tongue is sticking to my jaws. Israel is a hot place. And here he's fully exposed and baking in the heat of this midday sun. His lips are cracked. His tongue is swollen. His throat is parched. And instead of offering him something to drink, something refreshing, something to cool his tongue, they offer him bitter and sour wine to his cracked lips. But he refuses to drink. And while he suffers, they are gambling for his garments. They're casting lots to see who will get his sandals, his belt, his tunic, his outer garment. He's going to have no more need of these. 
but the soldiers are jealous to have them. Psalm 22 describes the scene. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. It's like Matthew is just going through the Old Testament scriptures and he's pulling all of these strands together. And then once they've settled the matter, they sit down and they keep watch over him. I think the point is that they're going to make sure that no one is going to attempt to rescue him. Matthew wants us, wants his readers to come to a point of decision about Jesus. He wants us to feel with certainty that that there is no doubt that this is the one of whom the Scriptures speak. This is the Messiah. This is the one who brings together God's Word. He wants his readers to understand that this is the crucifixion of the Lord's Christ. I wonder what Simon must have thought. Surely he must have appreciated something of the frightful cruelty of Jesus' sufferings. But would he be able in that moment to put together from the circumstances all of these evidences of the fulfillment of Scripture? And more than that, was he aware that he was witnessing the fullness of God's work of salvation in these sufferings of Christ? And that's our final point today, because whether Simon realized it or not, that is exactly what he was witnessing. He was witnessing the fullness of God's work of salvation. He was witnessing the accomplishment of redemption. This is the Day of Atonement. This is the true Passover. This is the true Exodus. He was beholding the slaughter of the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the exodus and path to freedom from the tyranny of sin, death, and the devil. Did Simon appreciate it in that dark hour? Or was he just the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time? An unwilling participant in the execution of this common criminal. I think we actually have very good reason to believe otherwise. You see, the Bible does give us other information about Simon. Mark includes something about Simon that Matthew does not. Mark tells us that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Do you know who Alexander and Rufus are? No, you don't but the early church did. Why else would Mark include this particular personal family detail about this seemingly random Cyrenian? The only reason you would tell someone this is the father of Alexander and Rufus is because those men are known to his audience. Though unknown to us, Alexander and Rufus were well known in the early Christian community. They would read the names of Alexander and Rufus and they would say, no way. You're telling me that Simon of Cyrene was Alexander's dad? 
that that was Rufus's father who got to carry the cross for Jesus? You're kidding me. That the only act of mercy that Jesus received in that horrific account was that Simon of Cyrene? Yes, that Simon of Cyrene. In fact, not only were Alexander and Rufus well-known, but so was their mother. You remember the long list of people that Paul sends greeting to at the end of the letter of Romans, and you read over it, and you go, I don't know any of these people. I'll skip to the end. Hopefully you don't skip over this little tidbit. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Greet also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. You see, it seems we have excellent biblical grounds to conclude that Simon and his family were one of those families who would come to faith in Christ. That Simon would come to understand that though he carried the burden of the cross for Jesus, that day it was really Jesus who was carrying the burden of the cross for him. That one day he would come to understand it. One day he would come to appreciate it as he witnessed the frightful suffering of Christ in the fulfillment of the Scripture, Simon would come to realize that he was witnessing the fullness of his own salvation. As there, Jesus was bearing his punishment for sins, his shame, all that was due to him. I wonder when it happened. When would he come to realize it? Was he one of those people on the day of Pentecost? One of those 3,000. Could he have been one of the witnesses to the resurrection of Christ? Can you imagine that? That's the same man I saw murdered. I wish we knew just a little more. In any case, it seems that Simon would go before his wife and his sons in faith in Christ, that Rufus would become an eminent leader in the church. That Simon's wife would render some motherly service to Paul himself, such that Paul names him them in the Holy Scriptures. And so in this way, I think that Simon and his family are a sort of picture of the whole church. That here, even in the darkest, most terrible hour, Christ is saving a people for himself. That God's plans and purposes are not going to be thwarted. As Hendrickson says, the service that Simon rendered, though initially forced, turned out to be a genuine blessing for himself and his family and many others. You know, I suspect that in years to come, as Simon would recount this incident, he would not say that he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but that he was in the right place at the right time. As are you. Today. You are here because Christ would have you here. You are listening to the sound of my voice, to this gospel account, listening to this message of the cross. The cross of Jesus who willingly goes to the cross for sinners. To offer up his life in exchange for transgressors in order that they might receive mercy, forgiveness, and life. 
that he might give salvation to whoever will call upon his name. Maybe you're here and you've never called upon the name of Jesus. And that very simply means to pray to him, to call out to him for mercy and salvation. Then you are in the right place at the right time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I suspect that most of you in this room have called upon the name of Christ. And today, let your heart be filled with the joy and peace that comes from the knowledge of all that Christ has suffered in your place, all that he has accomplished and done. And may the Lord be pleased to use the witness of Simon and his family to raise you up and your family up to be servants of the church and servants of Christ. Last week, after I finished preaching on the scourging, um, the Darris family was homesick, but they were able to live stream, and Dave sent me a text that just sums it up perfectly. He said it like this. He said, I will never love Jesus as much as he loves me. Truer words were never spoken. We will never love Jesus as much as he loves us. Oh, what manner of love the Father has given unto us. And yet we might love him a little more. May God be pleased to make our hearts abound in love for Christ more and more as we contemplate his love for us at Calvary. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we stand in awe and wonder at Jesus the Nazarene, at Jesus the Messiah, at Jesus, your only begotten Son, whom you gave for sinners. We stand and we are mindful that he suffered there for us, that he did not suffer there in some general way, but he suffered there for our sins, our particular sins. He suffered there for our idolatries, for all the many ways and the times that we have spoken vainly of you in your power and your grace. He suffered there for our lusts and our murderous, covetous hearts. And he took all of the pain and the shame that we deserve, and there he bore them in his body to the tree in order that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that this day you would be pleased to use this message of the preaching of the gospel in our own hearts. Lord, we are in the right place at the right time hearing your word. Lord, would you, call this, would you cause this word to fall upon fertile soil today? And in causing it to fall on fertile soil, would you also cause it to spring up and to grow into a great tree of faith that will last for generations and bear fruit for your kingdom in our own lives and in the lives of our children and the lives of our grandchildren. And so we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. When the Lord instituted the supper on the night that he was betrayed.
He wanted his disciples and he wanted all of us to understand exactly what was going to occur. He wanted us to understand that what he was about to suffer, what he was about to accomplish, was for us. That's why he takes bread and wine and he says, this is my body given for you. This blood is the new cup, my blood of the covenant poured out for you. He wants to make it abundantly clear that what he does on the cross is substitutionary in nature. It is for us. It is in our place. And that is done. It is accomplished. When Jesus speaks from the cross and he says, it is finished, it means that he has finished the work. There is nothing left for us to do but to receive it in faith just as we receive these elements today, just as we receive Christ himself and all of his benefits to us. And so today, as we come to this supper, let's come with a sense of the substitutionary nature of things here, that as we receive this bread and we eat it and share in the sacrifice of Christ, uh, we are mindful that it is all done, that the perfect sacrifice has been rendered that all of our sins have been paid for, and that we have received the fullness of God's mercy and grace to us. That is, of course, if you are among those who have received Christ, who have laid claim upon him by faith, who have called out to him for salvation. This is the day of salvation. But if you have not, then this meal does not belong to you. You can no more receive this meal in faith than Christ himself. The two belong together. And so though you might let these elements pass today, I would call upon you, do not let this Jesus the Savior pass. You're in the right place at the right time. And if you desire to know more of what that means, I would love for you to speak with me about what it means to follow Christ as his disciple. But for you who are his disciples, know today that as this bread comes to you and as this wine comes to you, it comes for you. Amen. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would take these ordinary elements and now set them apart for this holy use. Lord, we we come to your table. We come trusting in all that you have accomplished and done on our behalf. That as you were crucified, as, as the nails pierced through your body, And as you hung on that tree, bearing the curse of God and wrath for sin, that you were doing it for us. Lord, would you grant us that assurance of faith? And Lord, would you grant it to us now in this meal? That even as we receive this bread and this wine as from your hands, Lord, that you would be speaking to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And that you would be assuring us uh, through faith of the salvation, the fullness of salvation that is ours. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.